It is uh, an exciting time to be uh, at Treasuring Christ. We are a new church uh, here in the heart of Ann Arbor with the desire to see all people uh, treasure Jesus, uh, to know him, to love him, and to be his disciples. We want to be a church uh, that doesn't just exist uh, for ourselves, but a church that exists uh, for the sake of Christ, to make disciples, uh, and for the good of our community. And my confidence in what God is doing at Treasuring Christ is based on two things, that God has spoken, that we have his word, and that Jesus is risen, uh, that he is alive. That is the foundation of why we gather uh, every week as a church is, uh, is, to, is to come together to, to hear what God has said and to rejoice in God who, who came and took on flesh, who died in our place and who rose victorious from the dead. And while Jesus was here on earth, uh, he, uh, he was quite the preacher. Uh, we, uh, in fact, are just uh, plagiarizing his first sermon uh, for our first sermon series here at Treasuring Christ. Uh, we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is laying out for us what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, and we've been unpacking uh, the last uh, few weeks, Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uh, not only introduces the Sermon on the Mount, but especially where we've been the last few weeks, we see that Jesus shows us what, what it looks like for him to transform us from the inside out. What it looks like for God to do a work in our lives never begins with just conformity to an external standard. Uh, that, that is the way of religion. External standards aren't wrong. Uh, we, we live in a world that wants to buck external restraints and, uh, and to, to free and release full self-expression. God, God doesn't say that the external constraints are wrong or that his commands are bad. But he says that to, to focus on the external and the commands without paying attention to the internal and to the transformation of the heart is to be off from the very start. True religion, the, the, the religion and the faith that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount must address the inside. For those who belong to the kingdom of God are poor in spirit, are broken and contrite. They know they are not right with God are indeed, as the Bible says, sinners in need of God's grace and redemption. So they mourn. They, they look at sin and they don't casually brush it off, but they, they feel the weight of it. They understand their need for God. They hunger and thirst for God to work in them. This is, this is what it looks like in the Christian life, is, is to be poor and needy, is what the psalmist says. Uh, this I confess, that I am poor and needy. Uh, that the, the Christian doesn't presume to have it all together, but confesses gladly that they are poor and needy, but that God is more than enough. His grace is sufficient. Uh, and then when God begins to work in us, one of the most uh, noticeable and profound things about the Christian is that they live a life of costly love. They love other people at great cost because we follow a Savior who loved us at great cost. Through the cross. So our lives are defined by peacemaking, by pursuing others when there has been conflict and reconciling, by being genuine and sincere, not having pretense trying to prove our way or get our way, but, but instead seeking to genuinely care for and love others. This is what it means to be a son or a daughter of God is to be pure in heart and to love others as he 
has loved us. And, and even when those that we love will oppose us because we profess Christ, Jesus says, count it a blessing. Count it joy when you are persecuted and insulted for your faith. A Sermon on the Mount, uh, as I read through it and as we've been walking through it over the last few weeks, I'm more convinced than ever is, a, is, is the message not only that, that the, the early church needed when Jesus gave it, but it's the message that we need today to, to cut the fluff, to cut the games, to cut the gimmicks and say, what did Jesus say? Um, and that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's about what Jesus said life in the kingdom of God is all about. <clears throat> and so we've been looking over these last few weeks as Jesus has unpacked this internal righteousness. And today we're going to come to the issue of justice and love. We live in a world of injustice. We see it all around us. Uh, we, we feel it on a personal level, perhaps. Uh, maybe it's in school or at work, that feeling of this just isn't right. This isn't fair. Uh, we see it in the world around us. We're reminded of it. Uh, <clears throat> socially, we, we face uh, it on these personal levels, these hurts and wounds and injustices that we feel. We see it externally in a world still filled with racism and division and hate and divide between people. Uh, we, we see injustice all around us. And not only do we see injustice as we have socially defined it, but we see cosmic injustice every day in our own hearts and in the world around us as people choose to say, I'm going to go my way rather than God's way. We, we live in a world of injustice. And our text today, Matthew 5, 38 through 48, is going to call us to love in a way, if we are honest, doesn't make sense. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've had that experience. Maybe you can recall back uh, to your childhood and, and, and you were told to do something uh, by a parent or perhaps at work you were told to do something uh, that it just didn't make sense. It just didn't feel like the best way to do it or you couldn't wrap your mind around why this was the way it had to be. And in some ways, I feel like that's that's almost what, what Jesus does here to his disciples. You can see them looking uh, at Jesus going, I'm just, I hear what you're saying, but that just doesn't quite make sense. Jesus, do you, do you like not see the, the world around you? Like that's not how people act. That's not the way we treat each other. Uh, so in a world of injustice, God calls us to a love that doesn't make sense. We're going to unpack what that looks like. And my question for us is, how do we reflect God? How do we reflect God in a world of injustice? Remember, just tying together the, the Sermon on the Mount, we just, we looked at the, just kind of briefly summarized what the Beatitudes say. It flows out of the Beatitudes when Jesus says, therefore, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You see all of these things that we've been focusing on, this internal righteousness if, if, this is being, if this is being worked out in our lives, we will indeed be salt. We will indeed be light. We'll be the kind of preserving agent in a world that is decaying morally and spiritually. We will be a light that doesn't just expose sin and rebellion, but illuminates the way to God and shows people to a life uh, that's defined by something better, the good life that's defined by what Jesus said. So as we think about who we are as a people, we're not just only this pure and distinct people, 
but we're a people called on mission to make Christ known and that in all of our righteousness and all of the internal transformation that God is doing in us, it leads to a life that's lived out before others as a witness. And my prayer as we look at the Sermon on the Mount is that we would be a compelling witness. And perhaps there is no more compelling witness than to love people in a way that simply doesn't make sense. In a way that's defined by Jesus in Matthew 5, 38 through 48. We, we've heard this passage read uh, that, that is, has some familiar themes that perhaps we have heard to turn the other cheek. Uh, to love your enemies, to, to pray for them. Maybe we're familiar with some of these statements. But when we really look at what this passage is calling us to, if we really feel the full weight of it, just as we have really in all of these uh, passages that we've looked at, we will realize it's pointing us to our need for God. Uh, one, one commentator said, Nowhere is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount greater than in these verses. Nowhere is the distinction of the Christian counterculture more obvious than in these verses. And nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling than in these verses. Jesus is calling us to something that doesn't, does not only not make sense in the world, but is something that's impossible apart from his empowering grace that enables us to do it as all of his commands are. So we, we're going to unpack and look at these verses and see how God calls us to a generous and gracious love in the face of personal injustice and opposition. We're going to see how God calls us to a generous and gracious love in the face of personal injustice and opposition. The first point that I want you to see is that Jesus said that generous love displaces personal retaliation. Generous love displaces personal retaliation. Verse 38 begins as Jesus has been doing uh, by saying, you have heard it said. Remember, Jesus has shown us that the law of the Bible is really focused on and fulfilled in him. That to understand the Bible is to understand uh, it in relation to God's big plan of redemption that's come to, to its, its climax, its fulfillment in Jesus. And so he's not, he's not saying, now that I'm here, you can do away with the Old Testament. You only need a copy of the New Testament. He's, he's not saying that all that stuff in the Bible that's fuzzy and difficult to understand doesn't really matter. He's saying that all of it matters because all of it's pointing to me. And that to understand the Bible is to understand it in light of Jesus. And Jesus, not for one minute, says that we can get rid of anything that God has said in his word. But instead, what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing how what God has said has been used by many of the religious leaders in his day to prove their point or to, to, to make things comfortable or convenient for them. And, and here we see that Jesus is quoting something from the Old Testament uh, but in his description of how he counters it, we're going to see how it was being twisted and distorted during his time by the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. <clears throat> so this, this law of retaliation is, is found in, in the law of the Old Testament. It's found in Deuteronomy 19. 20 through 21. And, and when we think about this, I think sometimes we can get the wrong idea. We think an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know, you mess with me, you better watch your back. You know, like that's kind of the, the idea. Like we, we start kind of imaging, you know, Al Capone in our head. And you know what I'm saying? And then we feel like 
this is really talking about what it looks like to, to get even with someone. But when you look at what, what God does in the law, um, it's, it's pretty wise, uh, as, um, as one would imagine. Uh, what this law did was prevented what I was just talking about. This law actually prevents escalating and severe retaliation or retribution. So it says that the crime should fit the punishment. Um, so if somebody, uh, you know, steals your pumpkin at Christmas, you know, you don't go and egg their house, right? Um, if somebody, this might, that might have been recalled from a, a past time of my childhood, the things that I've done subliminally coming out. Um, if, if somebody, uh, you know, cuts you off in traffic, you don't um, give them sign language and ram them with your car, right? Um, if, if someone... Uh, has insulted you, said some harsh things about you, you don't seek to make it your point to an exact, exact a revenge upon them which will make them feel like a small little worm just because they insulted you. So this, this prevents a severe escalation, just like it would prevent a more violent one. If someone uh, severely injured your brother, you don't get together the clan and go and your family and go kill their family member. You don't retaliate uh, in, in kind, or you only retaliate in kind, not escalating it. But it also prevents a, a vigilante type justice, a justice that says, we're going to take this into our own hands. We're going to be the ones who, who enact justice. You see, the the law of retribution given in Deuteronomy was not to be enacted by individuals, but it was to be enacted by, uh, by the court, so to speak, uh, by, the, by the, the religious community, the leaders of that community were to be the ones who were to enact justice when injustice had occurred. It wasn't something that we took into our own hands, but something that we entrusted to those whom God had put over us. We, we see in this ordering of uh, of the law in Deuteronomy, that God is just. We're, we're going to be talking about how to love others and reflect God in a world of injustice. And as a baseline, if we don't first understand that God is just, we will be despairing. Or we will assume that we can take it into our own hands. Just like God was calling us to avoid in his law. God structured his people so that justice would be held out and experienced. He, he desired that his people be righteous, and when they were unrighteous, that they would be met with just judgment and punishment. And ultimately, we believe that God has promised that all, one day all things will be made right, that the God of justice will soon set all things right, whether it be today we're on the last day, but God is just, and this truth sustains us and strengthens us in a world of injustice. And apparently, this teaching uh, that, that we see so clearly in the Old Testament had been actually applied in a way that, as I said, contradicted the very point of the command. It was being used as a way to, to kind of justify the, the personal retribution, the getting back at someone who had wronged you. Uh, it, it wasn't always that it was violent, uh, but, but what you see is a lot of self-dealing uh, in the religious leaders of the day, getting their own way, taking God's word to use it to get their own way across. And so Jesus doesn't dismiss 
the teaching of the law and the importance of justice, but he radically deepens it with the application that we see in this command. If you look in verse 39, he says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, this, this verse and these passages have been taken um, and discussed uh, at great length. Much ink has been spilled over what they mean and how it relates perhaps to our understanding of war or service in the military or pacifism or uh, these various topics. I think it's important for us to understand the context and the point uh, which Jesus is driving home here. He's focused here on what's personally experienced some personal uh, injustice or mistreatment. It's not about what a nation should do. It's not about uh, in relation to someone else. It's based upon what happens to you and how you should respond to it. And we know that by the examples that Jesus gives. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn your cheek your other cheek to them also. If somebody sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. If somebody asks you to go one mile for them, carrying their equipment, a Roman soldier perhaps, go with them two miles. If somebody asks you for money, give to them. All of these things are personally experienced, and we know this from the illustration. So Jesus isn't prohibiting serving in the military or serving as a police officer. Jesus isn't prohibiting intervening when someone is attacking another person. Jesus isn't uh, prohibiting you from defending yourself if someone's trying to take your life or severely harm you. Jesus isn't saying that you should keep yourself in an abusive situation. He's not describing any of those things. Instead, what he's doing is focusing on what we must do in the face of personal injustice and provocation and mistreatment. And his, sa- his statement is simply this, don't retaliate. When you are mistreated, when you experience some type of personal injustice, he says, don't retaliate. Do not respond to evil. So according to these verses, here we have a picture of love. A love expressed through not retaliating. A love expressed through constraint, through withholding. It's the desire that you have when somebody has wronged you that says, oh, they will pay. That desire, Jesus says, don't act on it. Don't allow that thought. Don't dwell on that. He shows us the, the heart attitude to which we, we must address in these moments. And, and he says us that the, the attitude that says, I will get revenge, the desire that says, I will make retribution, And the actions that flow from it aren't a part of his kingdom. Honestly, as I think about these verses and I think about this call to love, no one um, perhaps in in such a striking and jarring way uh, has embodied and demonstrated this than Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, And and honestly, the, the civil rights movement that... Uh, that was birthed out of the church and based upon the teachings of the scripture and the leadership of Martin Luther King and others. Uh, no doubt there were influences. You can, you can read Martin Luther King as he uh, traces the influences that, uh, that Gandhi and others had on him as he thought through kind of a passive non-retaliation uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and all of those things. But, but nothing goes deeper and is more profound than the influence of Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount. The call to love your enemies and the call to not respond in personal retaliation. 
Consider the, the examples that Jesus gives. He says, turn the other cheek. When someone strikes you on the cheek in verse 38 or 39, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Who does that, right? You get slapped and you're like, this one, right? Unless it's like a good boxing movie, you know, like when they give you the right punch and then they're like, over here. You know, I I envision uh, this is like Muhammad Ali or, um, you know, maybe... I feel like Rocky always got hit both on the right and the left cheek, you know, and then somehow won in the end. But, um, but this isn't that, right? This, this isn't about a fist fight, actually. Um, it's, it's actually deeper than that. It's, it's more of a, a personal insult. Uh, to be slapped with an open hand on the right cheek does not only hurt one's face, but wounds one's soul, right? That's, that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying when you're insulted... Don't insult in kind, but instead turn the other cheek. And then Jesus gives this example of being sued for your clothes, basically. It's, it's, it's kind of a hyperbolic uh, uh, example when he says, if, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, uh, let him have your cloak as well. So anyone who takes you to court uh, so that they can get your wardrobe... Um, one would have to say is very vain or you are in need, really in need of clothing, right? Uh, the, the example is, is somewhat extreme, but his point is if somebody were to, to take your tunic, to offer your cloak is actually a, a pretty profound thing. One's cloak is, is almost kind of like a personal right. Uh, in, uh, in Exodus 22, verses 26 through 27, if you were to lend out your coat to someone, uh, they, would, they would have to give it to you before the end of the day. If you had some kind of debt and you needed some, you know, uh, you know leverage uh, for them to offer you some money uh, and you lent them your coat, they would have to give it back to you by the end of the day. How else could you keep warm at night, uh, Exodus says. It, it's, it's, it's kind of a, uh, this uh, perhaps absurd example, but it's showing something that's actually pretty profound in that not only do you not retaliate, but you actually go beyond what they're even asking for. They sued you for your tunic. They didn't even ask you for your cloak. It's your own personal right to your cloak. The law even ensures it. And he says, give them that too. Give them that too. Going beyond what was expected. This, this is where we begin to see the generosity, the, the generous love that displaces personal retaliation. It, we see this again in verse 41 when it says, if anyone um, <clears throat> forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. By Roman law, a Roman soldier could, could request a person to carry their, their baggage or their equipment for up to a mile. And the, the law was actually pretty strict on this point that they could go a mile and no further. Jesus says, go beyond that. Go beyond the customary law and go with him two miles. Now, you, you could imagine, perhaps, if, if this indeed was such a strict law for, for the Romans and word gets out that somebody went two miles for you rather than, than one. The, the generosity that's expressed when somebody basically is demeaning you and using you to do this menial labor. Uh, he says, <clears throat> go with them two miles. And basically, it's like going two miles and saying, is there anything else I can do for you today? It, it, it is in a way revealing the, the pettiness, revealing the, the sinfulness 
of how another has treated you through a generous and kind response. And then he says in verse 42, this generosity comes full circle. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So someone asks you for money, give it to them, Jesus says. There's no, no qualification given. And I know all of us, but what about, you know, I see this person every day, they're going to use it on drugs. What about? No doubt we need wisdom and discernment, and we will talk about that. But I, but I can't help but, but see how Jesus would push against just the default in our heart to keep our own. The, the self-serving, the greed that's in our heart. Jesus won't stand for it. He calls us to a generous love that displaces personal retaliation. Jesus says, don't get even, but generously serve. Who does that? This is, this is what we see Paul say in Romans 12. Listen to, to Romans 12, 17 through 21. <clears throat> you tell me if you think Paul read uh, and knew about Jesus' words. He says, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. (coughs) Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To respond to good with evil is is truly uh, evil. To respond with good, to respond to good with bad is truly evil. To respond to good with good is human nature. To respond to bad with good is divine, is of God. To respond to the one who comes against you, attacks you, hurts you, mistreats you with generous love is something that can only come from God. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's always need for wisdom and discernment as we apply God's word to our life. Uh, So when we we look at these verses, we, we know and we've seen that Jesus is speaking about our personal response to being personally mistreated, to personal injustice. He's He's trying to get at this knee-jerk reaction to retaliate and to get even. And he says, that's not reflective of those in my kingdom. That's not reflective of the generous love that I've called you to. However, as I I mentioned in relation to giving to the one who begs from you, there's there's always in us a a but what about kind of response, I think, to these types of commands. And what about domestic abuse? What about enabling someone who is taking advantage of you? What about professional beggars or someone using your money to buy alcohol or drugs? What about it being better to, to not enable or give somebody something if that's truly more loving? And to all those things, I would say all of those are good qualifications and important distinctions that we need to make and use wisdom and discernment to respond to. It's right and wise for someone experiencing abuse of any kind to get out, to say something, to report to the authorities. It's right and wise uh, if someone were trying to to exploit you financially or otherwise to not just allow it, uh, but to to do something about it. If, If you were to see something, uh, as the signs say around us, say something, right? Like it's not wrong to respond 
to the things around us as if we can't, we, we shouldn't do anything. Um, it's not talking about those things. Just like um, it's not saying that uh, if, we, if we know uh, that around us that there's maybe a better way than just handing out money to someone to help them, uh, that we, we should take that route. That's good and wise that we should consider that. Uh, that there's wisdom and discernment that's always needed to apply God's word. But as I mentioned earlier, I, I also don't want to, to, to blunt or to take away the edge of Jesus's call to a generous love. Right, because just like the Pharisees and the scribes, isn't it our desire to put limits on our love? To, to kind of fence in what we're called to, to do for others, to, to kind of keep it comfortable and safe. Don't want to get too messy. Don't want to go that far. God's calling us to a, a generous love that doesn't make sense. And that's only possible because of his empowering grace. So <clears throat> let, me, let me just kind of talk about maybe how this plays out. Some of the examples I've given maybe seem extreme, like, you know, nobody's financially exploiting me. I, perhaps, you know, you have never been in a situation of abuse or uh, maybe you've had that moment or that question of should I give money to the person who asked me and should I not? I mean, but, but on a more personal level in your daily life, what does this look like? What's this um, generous love replacing personal um, retaliation look like? Uh, I, I remember pretty striking early in our marriage, Emily uh, had a job. Uh, actually, we both worked at the same place at a school. She was an events coordinator and the administrative assistant to the student life office. And one of her jobs was to plan um, the matriculation process uh, for, for the college and, and the seminary. And uh, I'm, you know, it's been like 10 years, I think, since I first heard that word. And I still think it's a funny word, matriculation. I encourage you to, to find a way to use it in your everyday life uh, sometime this week. Uh, but <clears throat> matriculation means basically, obviously, uh, to, to, to enroll in classes and, and to get set up and to welcome new students. And so it's a pretty big process for any school, uh, regardless of the size, to get started, to get students in classes, to get everything moving forward is a big deal. And Emily's job was to oversee this whole thing for, for the school. And, um, <clears throat> and, and Emily is a good planner, and that's why she was an event planner. And um, so she sends out an email to, uh, to all the offices that are involved in this process, kind of laying out what everybody needs to do, when everybody needs to do it, and all the details that flow in between. Um, and, and things begin to, to work themselves out. And along the way, before everything happened, there was another office uh, that someone in that office apparently didn't agree with Emily's plan. Um, Emily was new on the job, and so perhaps there were things that she was unaware of or things that uh, were different in the past, but she's also kind of working based upon what her boss has told her to do, who's in charge of the whole thing. And, and so she's, uh, you know, she's trying to walk this line of being new and doing what she's been asked. And, um, and so it, it began to become apparent that not only were, were there others in, in this particular office that were, were kind of against Emily's plan, but, but in a way kind of uh, demeaning or dismissive of Emily in the process as she uh, worked out this plan. And so, needless to say, there was some real offense that had taken place. And, and afterwards, uh, as often is the case, in her office, they were debriefing. And it became apparent that, you know, this, even though matriculation happened, everything uh, kind of fell into place, there's still some lingering 
offense. And I still remember as a young husband and hearing kind of this unfold, I'm like uh, disobeying the scriptures. And I'm like, well, you just need to call her or email her or respond and say, here's the deal, you know, like get off my back and uh, this is the way it is. You know, that's kind of my default reaction. Um, And her boss affirmed what she was feeling. But then he, then he told her this. He said, I want you uh, to take my card and I want you to go buy lunch for her in her office and thank you and, and say thank you for serving us this last week. <clears throat> and there's part of me that as I remember hearing that, I was like, okay, you know, like it's a little, little much, but it's probably the right thing to do, you know. But, but when you really think about it, what her boss was doing is, is actually a lot like what Jesus calls us to here, a generous love displacing personal retaliation. And, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to think about what this might look like in our everyday lives. Think about the times when you've been hurt or wronged, big or small, maybe at home, relationships close to you and family, marriage, maybe at work, Maybe at school, these different relationships that we have, a time that you've been wronged by someone. Maybe it was a misunderstanding. Maybe it wasn't meant. But you, regardless, you, you feel the sting of the personal injustice, the personal mistreatment. And what Jesus is calling us to in this moment is to respond with a generous love, to, to seek the other person's good by somehow serving them, even if they don't deserve it. Even if they've done nothing to, to, to merit it. He calls us to this type of generous love that goes beyond what is expected of us. To meet somebody else's good. I, I can just think of the ways that our marriages would be strengthened. That our friendships would be strengthened. That uh, our offices would be strengthened. That our work groups would be strengthened if we would apply what Jesus is calling us to here when he says generous love displaces personal retaliation. So think of a relationship in your life and, and think about how even this week you could pursue generously loving that person in a way that, that goes beyond what's expected of you. Not you scratch their back if, you, if they scratch your back. Not... You know, well, I guess they haven't done anything recently, so I'll, I'll do this for them now. But in a way that goes beyond what would be expected, beyond what they themselves would expect, to show them the generous love of God this week. This isn't just what we, we look at in terms of, of the grand scheme of life, but has to be applied personally as Jesus shows us in these examples. How would it work itself out in your life to show generous love to those who personally mistreat you. But Jesus goes on, and in some ways, our verse 38 through 42 and verses 43 through 48 kind of go together with this dual theme, uh, of the single theme of love in, in kind of two unique ways. And so we see not only that, that generous love displaces personal retaliation, but that gracious love displaces personal animosity. You have heard that it was said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let's see if you really know your Bible. Where in the Bible does God say that you should hate 
your enemy. I, in fact, find the exact opposite. In Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See, the religious teachers of the day conveniently narrowed God's call to love their neighbor to those who looked like them, to those who uh, were a part of their tribe, their people, everyone else they gave themselves permission to hate. This, this twisting of what God had said, and in fact, blatant distortion of what God had said, to love your neighbor, adding to it to, to hate your enemy, reveals the allowance that the people of the day were giving for personal animosity. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at anger. The, the, the seed of murder uh, isn't just a fit of violent passion, but the seed of murder is a hatred and an indifference towards another person for whatever regard it might be based on race or background or status. It starts with hatred in our hearts, a, a dismissal of them as a person, a animosity towards others. And Jesus says this animosity can't stand. Instead, I say to you, love your enemies. That's what God's word said. And you want to know what that love looks like? He says, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be your sons of your father who is in heaven. Jesus doesn't only call us to love those who are like us, but to even love, love those who might count themselves as an enemy to us. Notice, notice what love, this love looks like. He, he says simply, pray for them. Now, in Luke 6, uh, as Luke records Jesus' teaching, uh, he, he says this. He says, I say to you, love your enemies... Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Love. Do good. Bless. Pray. This is what Jesus calls us to do. Not just to those that we like. I don't know if you uh, get into gift giving, whether it be for a birthday or Christmas. We're it's pretty crazy. We're close to to Christmas, and uh, <clears throat> and and there's something about uh, giving gifts uh, to uh, to your family, to those that you really love. Like when you really know somebody well enough that you can give them a gift that's that's really meaningful. Sometimes I know it's hard. You know, like the older you get, you're like, I really don't need more stuff. All your gifts become more expensive, you know, that you want. But there's something about knowing a person and being able to get them a gift that would be meaningful to them. Right. And it's a lot of fun to do that for the people that you love. Um, now, <clears throat> when you think about getting it uh, for someone that, you know, you pretty much despise in the office, uh, it doesn't bring you much joy. Right. When you get it for the person who annoys, if you think about getting a gift for the person who annoys you the most, you're not just like giddy with, 
what you can, you can come up with, you know? You're like, no, that's, that's like what you, you want to use a white elephant gift for, you know, for, for that person. You want to give them something that's just ridiculous, right? Um, <clears throat> or, you know, the, the fruitcake that somebody gave you last Christmas. You want to re-gift that, you know, to, uh, to that person. <clears throat> Which, if you haven't tried a Claxton's fruitcake uh, this Christmas, do me a favor uh, and don't, all right? So, um, <clears throat> if given that, that opportunity. Um, Jesus is saying, don't just love people who are like you. Love those who, who actually principally oppose you. Don't only seek to, to do good to the people uh, that it's easy to do good to, but do good to those who intentionally try to do harm to you. There's, there's nothing that's more striking to think about than, than Jesus on the cross. Uh, one of his last statements he makes as he hangs on the cross is a prayer of intercession. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For those who are gambling for his clothes, for those who are cursing him, for those who have spit upon him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One pastor said, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayers for his enemies, what pain, what pride, what prejudice, what sloth could justify our silence in praying for others? If our Lord on the cross intercedes for those who persecute him, what could justify our lack of prayer for those who would oppose us. Jesus often taught that the recipient of our love is our neighbor. And Jesus defined our neighbor not as those who are like us or those who are easy to love, but everyone. Everyone made in his image we are called to love. And and Jesus unpacks this further uh, in verse uh, verse 45. uh, He says, uh, that we're to love uh, our, our enemies, pray for those who persecute you, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is a picture of God's common grace, that he cares for and he loves the just and the unjust. So we don't merely love the unlovable, but we love everyone because God made all people in his image, and he demonstrates a care and a concern for, for all people that he has made. How can our love be anything less? But, but then we, we get this uh, kind of uh, sharp reminder that our love shouldn't just be like man's common love. God's common grace, our love should love all people like that. But man's common love, it says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The tax collectors do that. You, you pick, a, pick a, a sinner in your mind that you think, man, this person's really sinning. That's the tax collector. And Jesus says, even the worst sinner loves people who love them back. Man's common love and bent is to love those who are easy to love. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Those who don't know God, don't they even understand that they should love and care for for their own? Jesus is saying there's something more uh, than this natural love this natural limitation to love others to the extent that they love me. 
He's calling us to the divine, to, to return good for evil, to, to love in the face of personal mistreatment, of injustice, and for a gracious love to displace personal animosity. Not to nurse the wounds and to rehearse the sins of others in our mind and hold it against them, but instead to move towards them with a, a generous love is what he calls us to. So what does that look like for you? Think about it this way. What we see Jesus doing here and calling us to is to love in an unexpected way. He's laid out for us the ways that people would expect us to love. But he says, I'm calling you to love in an unexpected way. So what does that look like, to love in an unexpected way? How have you put limitations on your love for others? What, what kind of box have you framed that you'll love but only to this extent? Like we're new as a church, we're growing as a church, but the time's going to come when you're going to rub up close to somebody in the body and you're not going to like what happens when you rub up against them. Are you going to limit your love for them? Are you going to say, I'm going to love these people because I like them, but that person I'm going to try to avoid. What, what happens in, in your workplaces when, when that person who grates on you or, or who just always seems to undermine you, how are you going to show unexpected love, gracious love. And let me just encourage you to start where Jesus said, pray. When's the last time you've prayed for somebody that you struggle to like, that you struggle to get along with, that somebody has mistreated you? When have you prayed that God would bless them? When have you prayed that, that God would, would even be at work to, to open their eyes to see they're wrong if they've sinned against you, to, to soften their heart towards him? as well as to soften your heart towards them. Emily's circumstance that I shared earlier, uh, as you carry lunch to someone to offer it to them, to say thank you, the animosity, the desire to get even, begins to, to melt a little bit as you carry that lunch and you offer it to them. The same happens as we pray. You can't hate someone very long if you're truly praying. For them and asking God to work in their hearts and in their life. This is a gracious love that goes beyond what's expected. And it's a love that reflects God. In verse 45, it says that we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And then in verse 48, Jesus caps all of this off by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We know that Jesus' commands can't mean moral perfection. We've already seen that the first qualification to getting in the kingdom is to, is to know you're not morally perfect, to recognize your need for his grace and forgiveness. A true Christian isn't defined by their sin, but how they respond to it. That's, that's the true uh, uh, test of, of a believer. And in fact, as Jesus closes out this passage in verse 48 by pointing to the, to the perfection of God, he's done this elsewhere. To, we see in Scripture that God is holy, therefore we must be holy. God is perfect, I think, in this context. Perfect in love. Perfectly loving those who don't love him back. Displaying his love towards them. So when we think about how do we love like this, how do we love in, in, in generous and gracious ways, I think the only thing that makes sense of a world of injustice and a call to love that doesn't make sense is the cross. 
It's the cross where Jesus goes and suffers and is beaten and is betrayed and is mocked and is spat upon, is insulted. His clothes are taken from him and they mock him with a crown of thorns and they strip him naked and he bears his cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And in response to all of this, just like Isaiah says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hide not my, spa- my face from disgrace and spitting. And First Peter says, as he was led to the cross <clears throat> and he was insulted and he was mocked, sinned against, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. This call to love, this call to live the Christian life, this most pressing issue of how we reflect God in an unjust world can only be settled by the cross because it's only on the cross where God's perfect justice against our sin and his perfect love for sinners meet once and for all as Christ hangs on the tree, not forgiving and praying for sinners merely by his example, but by his substitute. By himself on the cross in our place, bearing the judgment that we deserved. Taking the just punishment for our sin upon himself so that we might be freed from our sin and free to love. Romans 5 verses 6 through 8 sum it up best and we'll close with this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But then brings it home with this, this truth. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God on display. Generous beyond what we could ever imagine full of grace that we don't deserve. How do we reflect God in a world of injustice? We know and we cling to the hope that God is a God of justice, that there is hope that God will make all things right and new, and that we even can stand now in this day to speak for what is just and what is true and to, to speak for what is right and what is good. But when we face the mistreatment and we face the wrong and the injustice that others may bring against us, the most radical and yet the most compelling witness of the church is that we love like Jesus loves because we've embraced his love as the very foundation and the center of who we are as his people. Freely forgiven, restored, made new. And when you know that God is just, and that God is love, you're freed up to love those who don't love you, to love those who oppose you. Your whole picture is changed. You actually, you understand that people aren't the real enemy, that we fight not against flesh and blood, that God is the one who is working in in every heart, and that the way to overcome evil is not with more evil. The way to overcome evil is with good and the good that comes through the cross. Let's be a people like this, a church 
whose inward righteousness, where we know that we are dependent upon the cross ourselves, that we've experienced that radical love of God that doesn't make sense to our world, that it compels us towards others in our daily life, that generous love would displace personal retaliation, that gracious love would displace any personal animosity. When we do that, we'll be a church that reflects our Savior, a Savior who went to the cross on our behalf. Let's pray.